We've been researching why it is that this hole in the membrane never seems to heal up. It's true that if you make a hole in the, the amniotic membrane around the baby, you can see that hole for the next few weeks. So if you put a, a fetoscope into the amniotic membrane, it's two layers, actually. So it's an amnion and a chorion. And then you look at that hole 10 weeks later, for example, it's still there. It might have shrunk down a little bit, but it's still about the size of my finger. And we were thinking, well, is there any way that we can try and make that hole repair itself? And why is it that it doesn't heal up? We've been doing a lot of work with a colleague over at Queen Mary University of London called uh, Tina Chowdhury. We've been kindly getting membranes from women who donate them after they've had their baby from the placenta. And we, we've either stretched it repetitively or we've made a little hole in it and we've tried to repair it. And what we found is that the hole, the membrane does heal up, but it so much depends on how big the hole is. Science. Science. Technology. Technology. Medicine. Medicine. Health. Health. These four things make the world go round. Without them, we couldn't exist. This is the Monday Science Podcast, a weekly show bringing you the latest research and news in science, technology, medicine, and health, answering your questions or finding experts in the field to answer them. Your host is a pharmacist, an award-winning scientist. She leads her own research group and is the founder of King's College London Fight the Fakes. A tad bit on the qualified side. Welcome to Monday Science. Here's your host, Dr. Bahija Rimey Abraham.
Hello, I hope you're enjoying the episode so far. I just wanted to let you know that every Friday we run a quiz on the latest Monday Science episode on our Instagram at Monday Science. Those with the correct answer will get a special mention and in the coming months we will have giveaway prizes. So make sure you stay tuned. Enjoy the rest of the episode. What is preterm birth? Preterm birth is when a baby's born before 37 weeks of pregnancy. So pregnancies are, are around about, about 40 weeks. And being born preterm, it means that you're born before 37 weeks. And even if you're born perhaps a few weeks before 37 weeks, you still have a higher rate overall if you the complications still have a higher rate of problems and that that ranges all the way through from short-term problems like breathing not being able to keep warm dropping your blood sugar right the way through to long-term complications such as you're more likely to have a heart attack when you're older you're more likely to have gestational you're more likely to have diabetes when you're older you it has a manifest across the board effect on you as a as a as a as a person growing up it affects your whole health basically of course the earlier you're born the more of a problem it is but it's responsible for it's the second leading cause of childhood death so 15 million births per year globally a preterm in the uk the rate of preterm birth is around about seven percent so that's fifty six thousand babies and the problem is it's really really expensive so in the uk it costs the public sector about three billion pounds per year so that's based on figures around 15 years ago but if we could delay delivery by just one week so we could delay we could de- delay delivering babies by a week we would reduce that cost by 1 billion down to only 2 billion and and the reason it's so expensive is because it has this short term and long term problems so short term babies stay in special care for a few weeks but but long term they're more likely to have problems in school they're more likely to have attention deficit hyperactivity disorder they're more likely to have problems growing up they're less likely to hold down a job for example there's a wide range of outcomes and it's really something the government has is, has made a major priority to tackle it they would like to reduce it from 8% down to 6% as a 5 year target they they're on track to do that but it it's a problem and and we don't we have a lot of reasons why people deliver preterm sometimes they go into labor themselves what we call spontaneous preterm birth and that can be probably the commonest cause is infection but also sometimes people are delivered a little bit early because they're unwell so for example preeclampsia where you get high blood pressure protein in the urine and that affects up to 5% of all women in their first pregnancy and that's probably more related to the way the placenta develops so placental insufficiency that's an area that i do a lot of work on which also causes the baby to not grow as well to be small and growth restricted so it's a major problem that we really do need to tackle but it's difficult because it's multifactorial lots of things play into it so for example social deprivation racism microaggressions not having having a facility you know in your in your own work environment things like you know the employment as well smoking drug taking all that kind of thing and how healthy you are when you get pregnant and now with this big issue with big issue obesity you know we are seeing that we know there is a relationship between how heavy you are in pregnancy and your outcomes. So if you are overweight, when you get pregnant, you're more likely to have preeclampsia, you're more likely to develop gestational diabetes, you're more likely to deliver preterm. 
So it's a big problem that we need to tackle multi, multiple agents. The theme of weight, fertility, health and pregnancy keeps coming up. It also seems it's, it's a challenge because of cultural perceptions on weight and shape. I think it's really important. It's not so much just your weight, but it's your fitness. So if people can, can, can improve their cardiovascular fitness and get fit for pregnancy. So we have a big big um, thing in in the institute preconception care is absolutely key because if you are overweight you can do small changes like for instance eat better when you are pregnant but it has very little effect on the on the size of the baby and and the, the outcomes the best way to have a good outcome when you get pregnant is actually to be fit for the six to nine to nine months beforehand so get fit for pregnancy is a big message stop smoking Try not to drink or reduce your alcohol intake. Don't take drugs. Folic acid. Make sure your weight is a good weight and, and exercise. And that's not just mums. It's also dads as well. That's so the message. That's the message. We've got to get it out there. Yeah, that, everybody out there. That's the message. And in particular, also the dads. But would the dads have to take the folic acid as well or no? Not the folic acid, no. but stop smoking, lose weight, get fit, don't drink alcohol. That will help. Perfect. I mean, that episode done. <laughs> Key message highlighted. I just want to go back to when you were talking about the fetal surgery and the hole. And you mentioned that the smaller the hole, the better in terms of outcomes later on. We've been researching why it is that this hole in the membrane never seems to heal up. So so it's true that if you make a hole in, in, in the, the amniotic membrane around the baby, you can see that hole for the next few weeks. So if you put a, a fetoscope into the amniotic membrane, it's two layers actually, so it's an amnion and a chorion, and then you look at that hole uh, 10 weeks later, for example, it's still there. It might have shrunk down a little bit, but it's still about the size of my finger. And we were thinking, well, is there any way that we can try and make that hole repair itself? And why is it that it doesn't heal up? So we've been doing a lot of work with a colleague over at Queen Mary University of London called uh, Tina Chowdhury. She's a bioengineer. And we've been kindly getting membranes from women who donate them after they've had their baby from the from the from the placenta and putting them into little sort of laboratory techniques where we, we've either stretched it repetitively or we've made a little hole in it and we've tried to repair it and what we found is that actually in fact the hole, the membrane does heal up, but it so much depends on how big the hole is. So if you make a small hole about sort of, you know, the end of my pen here, there's one I did earlier, little one, then, uh, then actually that hole does heal up. And over time, you can see that cells migrate. These cells are what are called myofibroblasts. So they're, they're, they're fibroblasts, they're fiber cells with, with muscle uh, contractile properties. And, and they, they move and they start contracting and constricting the little hole that's been made in the membrane and we can see that actually over time that that hole does heal up and what's really exciting is it's the first evidence that we've got to show that that the membranes do heal themselves so really what we're looking for is whether we can enhance that technique um, by perhaps applying different proteins different drugs to actually make the membranes more likely to heal up and this is a problem membranes that pop early or what's called PPROM, preterm premature rupture membranes, affects probably about 40% of all women who deliver preterm. Very often the membranes just pop. They might do a pop early, maybe at 20 weeks, halfway through pregnancy, and they don't heal up. What happens is the fluid around the baby leaks out and then infection can get in and women then go into labor. If we could find a way to seal that hole, refill the fluid, 
well, probably would refill by itself anyway if there was if there was a seal, then that might allow the pregnancy to go on a lot further. And you remember I said that, you know, we would save a billion pounds per year if we could delay deliveries by a week. That would be amazing if we could do that. So that's what we're working on. And with the whole, is there any scope for, and I don't know if you if this was also part of the study, to add like a mesh or something? Is there any reason why you don't put something there or you do? I don't know. Yes, well, now there's a lot of work going on that. So for example, if we made a hole in the womb, surely we can plug it? Yeah, well, that's very, we, we've done lots of different types, tried lots of different types of sealants. One, Professor Jan Press tried a little collagen plug many years ago. The problem with it is that the, the amniotic fluid around the baby has got all these enzymes in it that basically break down collagen. So you put a plug in there and a few hours later it's disintegrated. So we're developing, we're working with the bioengineers to develop plugs that can self-assemble. So proteins that can self-assemble inside the amniotic fluid into a plug, but this plug needs to be flexible. It needs to be able to stick to the membrane, to the hole. It needs to not be broken down by the enzymes in the amniotic fluid. It needs to be compatible, safe. So a lot of work, but it, it's quite exciting. We've got we've got some, some preliminary data to show that we can produce a plug like that. And uh, we're we're doing we incubate it with with the, the membrane in this little device and then we put amniotic fluid underneath and then this self-assembly peptides proteins on the top and see if we can seal the membrane so lots of work going on and you know it's very exciting and it would have a big impact if we get it to amazing i love self-assembly proteins. sorry that sounds really geeky it's just like, <laughs> like i love them yeah I, just, I find them very fascinating just how because with nanofibers which is my interest just how they come together and and work and you know being able to get that you've been getting the right combination of proteins to get you the right properties that you want for the end you know like yes I, I mean please let us know when you've published some of that work and, and what you're doing so what is fetal gene therapy so fetal gene therapy is where we're trying to treat genetic disease in the baby before it's born so what I've talked about mainly is structural problems but many diseases of babies are actually inherited so Inherited diseases individually are quite rare, but when you put them all together, they are a big part. They're a big cost and they're a big part of the reason why babies are admitted to hospital, for example. There was a study from the US that looked at hospital admissions and about a third of all hospital admissions for children were due to a single gene disorder. So examples like sickle cell disease or thalassemia, where it's a problem to do with the way your hemoglobin, the protein that is in your blood blood cells that carries oxygen, how that is actually developed. And if you have an alteration in the genetic code for that particular disease, then your hemoglobin isn't doesn't produce, isn't, doesn't work properly. And that really has massive implications on your health. And we can diagnose sickle cell disease and thalassemia before birth. And it is treatable. After birth, you can give blood transfusions. And actually, people are now doing bone marrow transplantation for it. And that is, is successful. But it does require a lot of, you know, intensive treatment after birth. So one of the ideas was to apply gene therapy, where you essentially manipulate, you correct the gene that is causing the abnormality. So there's a mutation, there's an alteration in the genetic code and correct that. And then hopefully that will improve the outcome. So I, I started to working on this as a PhD student back in 2000 and gene therapy was a big thing then. It was really, you know, it's going to make, it's going to come in five years. We're going to be treating everybody with this. Hasn't been quite that successful 
because it just takes time when something new comes through. But it's really coming coming of age. And I think for diseases that are going to be severe and have caused pathology, caused disease in the womb before the baby's born, it is going to be a solution. So probably not for sickle cell or thalassemia, because actually many babies with who are born with that do fine until a few months after birth. But we're talking about diseases that potentially affect the liver or the brain. So inherited metabolic disorders where there's an enzyme that's missing or incorrectly coded for, which means that you get accumulation of protein in your body which then causes brain damage or liver damage so if you could correct that gene before birth you will then stop that occurring but of course it's full of difficulty because you need to be able to target the gene target the organ you want to make sure that it's safe for the mum. it's got to be safe for the baby and you also don't really want to go around changing other parts of the baby so perhaps you won't want to change the the genome you know that the sperm and the egg because they're there in, in the baby before birth so it's quite difficult to achieve all of that so we've been working you know, hypothetically looking and, and the groups around the world that have demonstrated in in mouse models that you can actually cure disease before birth using gene therapy. It's not it's never been done in humans before. There's work that's related. So stem cell transplantation that is being done. So that's putting in stem cells before birth to cure genetic disease that is being done. And there are some trials that I, one trial I'm involved with, and there's another trial in the US, which is for alpha thalassemia before birth. So it's a really exciting time to be in this field because people have been talking about it for a long time. And we're now just about getting the first clinical trials coming through, which we hope are going to give us the evidence to say this works and we can cure genetic disease before birth. That's amazing because, I mean, obviously many people will be happy to know that, you know, and it would save a lot of lives and, and also help people um, with the babies, making sure they have healthy and full, full, full lives. I have three, well, I have many questions. Why <laughs> targeting the brain and the liver and so diseases that affect the brain and the liver? And then the second question, before I forget, would be with gene delivery, again, sort of pivoting off my question around the time in the pregnancy, the stage in pregnancy mm -hmm. where you would do the surgery, yeah. would there be, because obviously we know different, there's different stages of pregnancy, there's different growth of, you know, various yeah. things. So yeah, is that something that you've had to consider as well? So sorry, I've asked Absolutely. like two loaded questions in one. No, I think that the... the I think any disease which has significant pathology before birth is going to be a target because if you leave it until after birth, for some, some of these severe diseases, the damage is already done. So all you can do is get the bait, stop further deterioration. You can't improve the baby's outcome. So that's why many of these metabolic disorders that occur before birth actually affect the brain. So they cause brain damage. And, and uh, I don't know whether you, you might have read around, there's a, there's a treatment for something called SMA, so spinal muscular atrophy. So there's a gene therapy that's now available, which is being used. I believe they are going to be using it in the UK. And they've given this to babies with SMA. So they have a genetic mutation of their spinal muscular SMN1 gene, which means that it affects their movement. And usually these babies, depending on the type that they have, will die within nine months to a year. But, but for, for these children who've had gene therapy after birth, shortly after birth, they've managed to basically prevent deterioration and they're walking, talking and, and to all intents and purposes doing 
being normal. Now, there are certain diseases, types of, of SMA that occur before birth. So the idea would be to actually give treatment before birth to stop the deterioration that occurs during the pregnancy. I think the other question you asked is about timing, and that's really, really important because, of course, you first of all, you've got to make a diagnosis. So we have to be sure that the baby is affected, and that means we need to do some kind of invasive prenatal diagnosis. So taking amniotic fluid or taking a placenta sample, or we could do non-invasive prenatal diagnosis. So taking blood from the mum's arm, looking for genetic material from the baby that's circulating in the mother's circulation, make the diagnosis like that. But we have to be certain it's a diagnosis. And then we have to be able to target the organ at the right time. So what's interesting about the fetus is that you can very easily give an injection into the umbilical vein as it's going through the cord. And that goes directly into the baby's circulation. So fetal medicine, we can give blood transfusions to fetuses if they're anemic, for example. So we could quite easily, relatively, relatively safely, give an injection of stem cells or, or gene therapy into the umbilical vein as it's tracking through the placenta or actually tracking through the liver of the baby. And that will target the whole baby. And with gene therapy, where you're using a vector, which contains the, the correct gene, you can inject into the umbilical vein and it can target the brain of the individual that you inject. So you could give an, a systemic umbilical vein injection, which could then allow the, the, the vector to go up into the brain and correct the gene that might be in the brain. That timing is going to be critical because you don't want to do it too early because it's slightly more risky for the baby. So giving you an example, around about 20 weeks is when we probably would start doing fetal blood transfusions. And the risk of pregnancy loss is around about one in 100, so pretty low. So you've got to have a disease where you're confident, you know the diagnosis, and if you gave some treatment at 20 weeks, it was going to work. Right. So it's that accuracy, you need that accuracy in, yeah. in there. Yeah. Wow. So we've done a lot of work. Uh, we've developed a, a trial um, of in utero stem cell transplantation for brittle bone disease or osteogenesis imperfecta. And that's now open in Sweden, who are uh, we're, we're collaborating with. And it's the first clinical trial for this particular indication. And the idea is to give ultrasound guided injection of mesenchymal stem cells, which are stem cells which can develop into bone and we're going to give them into the umbilical vein and we know that they target the bone and in this particular <clears throat> disease called OI, osteogenesis, the bones are very short, very fractured from very early in pregnancy and uh, babies that have this, individuals that have this, so the severe cases, they don't survive after birth. So we would actually, or they have, or if they do survive, they have very severe fractures, you know, 200 fractures a year, they have a, a severe pain. The idea is that this would improve the outcome, reduce the fracture rate, improve the pain score. And there have been a, a few cases in the world where that's been done in Sweden and with good outcomes. So this is the first clinical trial to see whether how effective it is, how safe it is. We've spoken about uh, COVID, that we're still here, uh, but you published, or you were part of a, a publication, SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19 infection, is fetal surgery in times of national disasters reasonable? Now, I, it's a very interesting read because, you know, it's, it opens up a lot of questions. And I see you published it quite early, 11th of April last year. So, you know, already we were starting to see at that point the huge impact. And I'm sure for you on the ground, you would have seen the huge impact that just 
that COVID, that even the infrastructure and all that stuff had, had caused. So can you just tell us a little bit about the paper, but really what went into your thought process before that discussion and, and, and the publication? It, yeah, it, it was a very timely thing because, of course, the we were very mindful that the, the mum really is the priority when it comes around to fetal surgery. And what was emerging from, from various countries that we were having discussion with, for example, in, in China and, and Hong Kong and, and Italy, was that mum, pregnant mums were really suffering a lot with this disease. The last thing we wanted to do was to make it worse. Because actually for fetal, for spina bifida fetal surgery, there is um, a gold standard technique of, of repair, which is postnatal repair. You know, postnatal repair has good outcomes for babies. Prenatal repair has slightly better outcomes, but it has, but it's it's not as safe for the mum. So we were very aware that we needed to make sure that mums were the priority, were the safe, safe priority. This was in collaboration with Professor Jan de Prest, who we work with very closely in, in UCLH. What we decided was we would go down the tenets of, of fetal surgery, which is always number one priority is the mum. We were like, well, <clears throat> actually, if the mum has got COVID, then we shouldn't be operating because we don't know enough about it. And it may well be that opening up the womb when mum has in the infection is going to increase the risk of preterm birth in itself without even repairing the, 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 the baby's spinal cord. We decided that we would swab the mum before she has the, the surgery, they would obviously be self-isolating. We would swab the mum a few days beforehand and then just before we would be operating. So we put the mum to sleep during the fetal surgery. So everybody had to had to obviously wear full PPE. So we had the visor on, we had the mask when she was being put off to sleep so that nobody potentially got infected. The, the, there were very few people in the theatre when we put her off to sleep and then we all came back in again. It was all done incredibly carefully with a view that, that we want to avoid, if at all possible, the mum getting the infection. And, and it worked and we carried on operating throughout the pandemic. It didn't slow us down at all. We, we were quite prepared to say, look, if it becomes too difficult, we won't do this because it's just not the right thing to do. But we were able to continue operating. We, we have the fetal surgery services commissioned nationally by NHS England. And there are two sites, one in Belgium, we're us in, in, the, in, in, in London, and it's split geographically. So patients in the north in Scotland go across to Leuven and patients in the south come down to us. And we worked very closely with NHS England. Patients are still able to go across. They went uh, on the train or they flew. They had a swab before they went. And it's been a great success. We've continued. We've had this, this surgery service open throughout the whole pandemic. That's, that's amazing. Amazing to hear that. And also just amazing and reassuring because I feel that there have been maybe other areas where there has been a dip you know in terms of things like cancer screening and things like that so you're you know people not feeling comfortable to go to their GPs or, or even mm. hospital which has also, also unfortunately resulted in deaths as well so it's nice to have a positive story of actually there didn't need to be a dip in a service and an opportunity yeah. and to help and help people and save lives. So that's good. How what was the COVID experience like for you working in general? How was that for you? 
I think I think the first wave, well, in, in maternity, we just carried on work as usual, but just more difficult. So I actually operated on the first COVID positive woman in, in my hospital. I did the first cesarean section. And it was quite frightening because this was in March and we didn't know what, what was going to happen. We just had to do the best that we could. So we were a cesarean section is quite a sweaty procedure because there's a lot of pulling and tugging and it has to, the room has to be warm because the baby comes out and needs to be kept warm. So I remember I had, I was, I was had on a plastic apron underneath my, my sort of usual, you know, gown and then double gloved and then the, 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 the proper mask and then a visor. And then we had to gown up, go in, wait for the patient to come in. And then we had to to gown down, you know, doff and don the gowns in different places, and you had to peel it all off, and there was all this sweat everywhere, and you're thinking. <sighs> so, you know, actually an emergency was quite a challenge. What we did was many of our junior doctors were pulled over to um, the COVID wards. The, the gynecologists went over, they worked on the COVID wards, and we in obstetrics stepped up, so we were doing extra sessions on the label ward because we had to backfill the junior doctors who were not on the label ward anymore. So we were doing, I was doing extra clinical work as well as sort of managing my research and teaching as well, because I had a big teaching load. And we were staying locally in, in the, to the hospital. So we were staying in a local hotel that very kind of put us up at night. So we had to stay local so we could come in. And we were, consultants were operating on any COVID positive woman because they felt that was, you know, we, we had to be in charge and, and managing the, the risk. I think that lasted for a few months and then it became more clear about how it was spread. And, and then, of course, the vaccines came forward and it was so more it, it was easier. But I think that the, the stress went away a little bit. But then in the in the the, the, the the next wave, we had more pregnant women who were in ITU and that was quite a challenge. So we had a rotor, we were going around and seeing three, four, five women in ITU ventilate. They all did well, they all did well, but but they were unwell for a very, very long time. It was quite a, quite a challenge really. But you know, we've come out of it. I think, I think the healthcare staff, everybody has been amazing and not just the healthcare staff, you know, the porters, fantastic security people. And everybody around the hospital really supported us. We had food delivered because, of course, you couldn't go outside. There was no restaurants, no cafes, nothing open. And, and you know, if you were on ITU and working ITU, you needed, you had a quick break, a half an hour break, and then you were back on again. So you needed food to just be provided. So there's lots of people, lots of charitable donations for food, which was amazing. Amazing. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast today and uh, it'll be great for you to come back, give us an update on all the amazing work you're doing. It's just fantastic and inspiring as well, just to hear all the work that you're doing and the impact. There's a difference between doing the work and then being able to see it actually help save lives. So I'd like to ask you if you have anything you'd like to share, you know, some key take-home messages from everything that you've said today. Well, I think I think the main thing is that that pregnant women and their partners want treatment for pregnancy diseases and they are willing to take part in clinical trials. And I think they deserve to have the best evidence-based treatment for their sense and their babies. And the new terminology we've come up with, we think is really going to transform how trials are done for all sorts of interventions in pregnancy. Obviously, treating the fetus before birth is really difficult. It has to be done carefully. Mum's safety is priority, but it is possible to do it. And we need to embrace this. A pregnant woman want us to do that. So we've just got to plow on. You've been listening to the Monday Science Podcast, a weekly show bringing you the latest research and news in science, technology, 
medicine, and health. We hope you've gotten some useful and thought-provoking info from the show, and we hope you had fun along the way. We know we did. We'll be back soon. But in the meantime, hook up with us on our website at www.mondaysciencepodcast.com. Shoot us an email at info at mondaysciencepodcast.com. Find us on Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube at Monday Science. And access episode summaries at mondayscience.medium.com. See you next week on the Monday Science Podcast.